We're here this final night together, and I'm kind of sitting and savoring our quietness, and also was really loving the feeling of the connecting and the speaking, and I wonder how it was for you. (laughs) It's very revealing, isn't it? Just to begin to bring that presence into speaking and both see the possibility of connection and also how much our um, habits just jump in. It's very, it's very useful, very illuminating, I think. And I love that we do it. It's very intentional that we, um, rather than wait till the very end, begin to explore how do we take this practice here, which is a practice of being at home in awareness, in our hearts, and live it. One of my understandings of the path, what helps me, is to sense that we are um, practicing to realize what's here, realize the awareness, the openness, the kindness. And then as practice deepens, there's a kind of stabilizing where we get more and more familiar with, yes, that's home. Yeah, we, get, we forget, we get caught, but this is home. So there's the realizing, the stabilizing, and then the inhabiting where we really are living, living from that truth. That truth is what we are. We just live it in our our words and our expressions with each other. So another description of this is the bodhisattva path, a path of awakening beings. And it's a path of realizing connectedness. It's that realization that uh, there's no self here, but there's a fullness and a love that's here, and that we can live from that. So I'd like to explore tonight a bit about the Bodhisattva path, and begin with one of my favorite stories. It's a Sufi story, and it's about a man who was so good that the angels asked God to give him a gift of miracles, and God wisely says, maybe you better ask him if that's what he wants. <laughs> so they, they visit this good man and offer him first the gift of healing by hands, and then the gift of conversion of souls, and then lastly the gift of virtue. And he refuses them all. And then they insist he choose a gift or they'll choose one for him. Very well, he replies, I ask that I may do a great deal of good without ever knowing about it. So here's how the story ends. The angels were perplexed. They took counsel and resolved upon the following plan. Every time the saint shadow fell behind him, it would have the power to cure disease, soothe pain, and comfort sorrow. As he walked behind him, his shadow made arid paths green, caused withered plants to bloom, gave clear water to dried up brooks, fresh color to pale children, and joy to unhappy men and women. The saint simply went about his daily life diffusing virtue as the stars diffuse light and the flowers scent without ever being aware of it. The people, respecting his humility and love for his fellow beings, followed him silently, never speaking to him about his miracles. Soon they even forgot his name, and they called him the Holy Shadow. So the holy shadow. There's something very comforting 
about thinking that we might be of help in some way that we don't know. That being here, that there were times that each of you in your consideration of each other or through your prayers and through your presence, through your really being here, gave hope or help or a feeling of upliftment to another. That's what happens. We do touch each other. And then at home, how our smile or our words, our actions might really provide some comfort, be soothing. So it's really deep in our nature to want to help. And definitely on an ego level, it, it satisfies our worthiness project, you know, we want our good personhood. You know, we all, we all want to feel good about ourselves. And um, so that's a part of the mix, but there's something deeper. And that's that it really expresses our fundamental caring about life, a feeling of connection, that we want to help because we belong to this world. And really, when we're in that awareness of wanting to help, of caring, we're happy because we're more who we really are. That's what we mean by homecoming. We've really arrived, we're beginning to inhabit really who we are. There's a story about the Dalai Lama who's speaking with some people, and he said kind of casually, I don't know why people like me so much. And he said, it must be because I value bodhicitta, you know, the awakened heart-mind. He said, I can't claim to practice it all the time, but I value it. So I found that reassuring, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, if it's kind of if the, um, you know, Dalai Lama feels like he values something, he's not always there, and we all know our hearts open and close. And you know it during the metta practice. I mean, how many times have we been guided and some part of us just said, you know, why is this heart like a stone? You know, nothing's going on in here. And yet, we care about caring. Isn't that true that even when we're kind of cut off, we're still caring about caring? It matters. And that's the the love that's kind of peeping through but not completely inhabited at that moment. So the bodhisattva path, it's a very fundamental shift in identity from a small self that's concerned with self, that's caught in the wanting-fearing self, to a real sense of belonging to this web of life, of really feeling a kind of field of presence that we're a part of. I love the way Sri Narsargadatta put it when he said, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. So the Bodhisattva path is is recognizing that there's thoughts about self, but when we're really present, there's just life playing out. So wisdom tells me I'm nothing, no thing, and yet love tells me I'm everything. And between the two, this life flows. So this is the wise heart of the Bodhisattva. So there's a shift. And it's gradual, but we become more and more familiar with a sense of the who we are is not uh, hooked or hitched to these limiting ideas about a self, a self that's on 
his or her way, a self that's falling short, a self that should be good. Instead of that small self, there's a sense of belonging to our world. And this is the shift that really, in an evolutionary way, is our hope. That it's the hope for the world. That if we enlarge our sense of what we belong to, that will allow us to act from that place of care to help heal our world. The first part of the Bodhisattva path really is seeing the trance of separation. You know, the Buddha started with, you have to be able to see the suffering, see the trance of separation. And we can see it, you know, it's, it's very thick. We get very armored when we're caught in it. And we can see it here. I mean, did you notice how in the times when fear got strong or the obsessive thinking was really intense or you were very restless or very, very upset about something, how the sense of self got very solid and there's more of a sense of being in a bubble and I'm in here and the world's out there? Did you notice that? When we're in reaction... The selfing makes us kind of a solid inside here, world out there feeling. It's interesting to inquire just in any moment, you know, do I feel a sense of belonging? Is there, how much is there a sense of kind of self-referencing or really that kind of relaxed a part of a field? You can just sense even right now, you know, whether thoughts and ideas kind of create a sense of a self here. And then we all know the moments when it really gets quiet. And each of you touched it some. And when our hearts sometimes either melt open or break open. And there's just awareness. That's, that's where the belonging is. So it happens, we can see it here, how quickly the trance sets in. And of course, at home, with our habits of reactivity, it becomes quite clear how it plays out in, in relationships. How when we're caught in feeling separate and reactive, how much we're, we're, we get organized then around seeking approval, around holding on to what we've got, around proving ourselves, around a sense of who's better. You know, we, we, we scan, and we, with many, when we're feeling small, we're always scanning for better and worse, higher and lower, you know, feeling a sense of power over. Somebody sent me this recently. A young woman was pulled over in Austin, Texas for speeding. As the Texas state trooper walked to her car window, flipping open his ticket book, she said, I bet you're going to sell me a ticket to the Texas state police ball. (laughs) He replied, Texas state troopers don't have balls. (laughs) There was a moment of silence while she smiled and he realized what he had just said. (laughs) He then closed his book, got back in his patrol car and left. She was was laughing too hard to start her car. (laughs) So what gets most humbling for us is how with the people we're closest to, 
um, how when we can go into reactive trance, how we all know what it's like when we feel misunderstood, when we feel mistreated, when we feel ignored. You know, we might have all the right ideas, but we get small, we get reactive, we get filled with hate or anger, we close down. And then we can see the trance of separation globally, and it's a horror. It's a horror how it's playing out globally. That's sometimes where it most strikes us. That out of feeling separate, which means afraid and needing to grasp, wars are just raging over the planet. You know, humans torturing each other and imprisoning each other. And then the ways that out of that trance of separation, there's this, this disconnect from the earth. And so we destroy this earth. We use up all the earth's resources. We, um, species are going extinct even as we've sat in this retreat. They say the rate of extinction is such that there have been species that have gone extinct, never to be seen again, because we're caught in this kind of trance that doesn't realize our belonging to the web of life. We don't realize. And I name it because our bodies, our nervous systems know this. You know, when we say, well, we feel a sense of agitation or we feel depression about the world, it's an intelligent response. That doesn't mean we have to get identified and and sink because of it, but it's an intelligent response to a world that is suffering. This is uh, the words of Wendell Berry. He says, It is the destruction of the world in our own lives that drives us half insane and more than half. To destroy that which we were given in trust, how will we bear it? The magnitude is hard to let us go near to... And yet, and yet the truth is, and this is, I feel like, one of the the gifts of retreat, is that we realize that not bearing it, you know, ignoring or turning away from the realness of the suffering, and that's our own or others or the earth's, is exactly what solidifies the trance of separation. That the only way to begin to wake up from it is to let ourselves be touched by the suffering. And in tonight's talk, I'm going to be emphasizing compassion and that's a large part of the bodhisattva path, and it's not all. The, all the Brahma-viharas are involved. But in the most basic way, the bodhisattva path is a kind of courage and willingness, because we love life, because we love waking up, to let ourselves be touched by the suffering, by the pain of the trance of separation. The poet Relka has a a verse that I kind of say to myself a lot, which is, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may never complete the last one, but I give myself to it. And I feel like that's what we're practicing here, which is widening the circles of what we include
So the Bodhisattva path starts with the first circle, which is the most immediate life. We need, if we can't open to what's right here, we can't open to the rest of it. And there's a, a saying that the heart of Buddhism is compassion, and the heart of compassion is compassion towards ourself. And the reason that you heard through probably every talk that was given, I hope you heard, in some way that message that, that we begin to wake up when we can feel directly without judging or pushing away the vulnerability that's here and begin to hold it. Susan described so beautifully the pivotal moment for her, and it can be sudden for us or it can be gradual, that we begin to recognize what's happening inside us and respond with, with a kind of kindness. There's a um, way that this is expressed in terms of aspiration on the bodhisattva path that I think is very, very helpful and powerful. And that is, the, um, the languaging is, may all circumstances serve to awaken compassion and wisdom. May whatever is happening in my life right now, the most difficult, whatever it is, may this serve to awaken this heart and mind. Very powerful. And what that means is that when we go home, if we go home to um, sickness, if we go home and find our partner or child is um, is in, in a lot of trouble in some way, if we go home and there's some failure we experience at work, may this serve to awaken this heart and mind. And one of the first insights we get here is when the difficulties arise, there's a little bit of lag time. And before we say, sense how can this awaken, we try to either ignore it, push it away, resist it, judge it. There's, there's always lag time. It's, it's our um, nervous system's reflex. It's difficult, unpleasant, don't want it. So our practice here is to recognize and reduce the lag time. Oh yeah, this too. May this serve to awaken. And this, and this. The challenge is that it's a very deep conditioning when we're having a difficult time to in some way blame ourselves for it. And again, I hope you recognize that theme through. A time I, a couple of years ago, one of the women at retreat that I was working with was struggling with bulimia, and it had ruined a relationship, and she wasn't able to, and, and it, she couldn't be intimate with anyone because of it, because her feeling of self-hatred was so big. And she knew she was miserable, and she knew she was suffering. Now, the dynamic of awakening compassion is if you can be with the suffering, you get tender towards yourself. She knew she was suffering, but she could not feel tender towards herself for it. And the more we explored, the more she realized that no matter how much she felt the suffering, added on the proliferation right away was, I'm bad, I'm wrong, it's my fault. It was her fault. It was her fault that she couldn't control her eating. It was her fault that she ended up alienating the people she was with. And so our practice together was right at that place where the judgment was. And we began to explore what would happen if she 
in some way said, it's not my fault. And her fear was as soon as she, if she said, it's not my fault, that then that would be like a green light and things would go to hell even worse. Wasn't true. As she started exploring, it's not my fault, which is really the wisdom of anatta, that it's, it's conditions playing out. It really is. As she began to, began to explore that, something softened and she could begin to directly connect with the misery. And that's when she could say, ouch, this hurts. We won't feel compassion unless we can directly connect with the suffering. If there's a layer of something's wrong with me for this, that's a buffer. We will not be able to feel the tenderness. Same thing when I was working last year with a man at retreat who was, uh, had a lot of anger and acted it out a lot and was really ashamed of it. And it wasn't until he could say, it's not my fault. And it's hard because we have such a taboo against anger. If he could sit, when he could start to really sense that, that's when he began to really uh, feel a tremendous amount of sorrow and kindness for how much he had been trapped in this conditioning. And he began to have more choice around his anger. It's not my fault doesn't make us irresponsible. It actually makes it possible to respond kindly. So just to take a moment, and let's just try on together this bodhisattva aspiration and just see where, how it fits with your life right now. Just take a moment, we'll just pause and let the attention go inward. And again, we're starting with the first circle, which is what you've been doing since we've been here. But you might sense something in your life that's difficult. Something that in some way stirs up fear or anger or hurt. Let yourself be aware, kind of close up, of the situation and what's really so hard about it or difficult. What you're really afraid of, what really bothers you. Just inquire for a moment, how have you been relating thus far? You know, how have you been regarding this situation? Has it been something you've wished would go away or wished you could fix? Have you been judging yourself for your part in it? Feeling oppressed by it? Trying to turn your attention away from it? in some way at war with how it is. Just to honestly sense, how have you been relating to it without judgment? And then to try on this aspiration 
May these circumstances serve to awaken this heart and mind. Or if you'd rather, how may these circumstances serve to awaken this heart and mind? Just with sincerity. Sense the difference in who you are when you're fighting or not liking difficulty, and the sense of your being when your aspiration is to awaken. The Dalai Lama at one point was meeting with some Western teachers. If you'd like to open your eyes, you can. and, and one of their questions was, what is it that the students in the West most need to, to know or remember? And his response was that we trust the power of heart and awareness to awaken through all circumstances. And my sense is when we're practicing as we are, that's what deepens, this kind of faith or trust that if we stay, if we open to what's here, we discover openness. Have you noticed how when you really stay, space opens up? And we just become that spaciousness. There's just more, an enlarged sense of being. When we learn to stay with the different painful parts of our own being, then that openness has room for others. That is the way we open our hearts to others. Um, You know what it's like when you've grieved deeply, you've really opened to grief, and then when you're with another, there's really no guardedness. You can kind of look very deep into another's eyes because you've you've already been the loss. You've already opened to the loss. There's nothing to lose at that time. You're not protecting against some loss. I love this description in the Lakota Sioux tradition. A person who is grieving is considered to be most wakan, that means most holy. There's a sense that when someone is struck by the sudden lightning of loss, an openness to that which is beyond this world can occur. The state of holiness is respected. Grieving people's prayers are considered especially strong. It's proper to ask them for their help. So it's true with grief. It's also true with fear or shame or anything that arises. If we've faced and opened to it with tenderness to our own being, we can be there for another. So this is widening the circles. And part of what allows us to widen the circles on this bodhisattva path is that when we are opening to our own, we can begin to name what's true for us hear others' name, what's true for them, and sense the sameness. It's quite um, liberating to realize it's not so personal, and also to realize that we can feel a kind of tenderness for each other. It's like we are a field of caring and tender towards the particularities of our humanity, you know. 
another story for you that I wanted to share. This, uh, some friends at Spirit Rock um, arranged for the Gyoto Tantra Choir. This is Tibetan monks that are famous for their multivocal kind of chanting to come to San Quentin Prison and chant for the prisoners there. And then the African-American prisoners at San Quentin were going to be chanting back their gospel choir music. But there was, uh, there was a concern, and I'm going to read to you. The members of the San Quentin Gospel Choir were all African-Americans, many of them big men, who worked out with weights. In their years in prison, they had been born again, touched by the Spirit of Jesus. And their songs were testimonials to their depths of suffering and to the light of the gospel that had been awakened in them. The organizers feared that the Tibetan monks would appear to be merely foreigners and heathens to these newly awakened Christians. When the heathen monks arrived, the contrast was even more apparent. Dwarfed by African Americans was a a group of small Asian men wearing maroon skirts. (laughs) The question was how to bridge this gap, and and the solution was in this beautiful introduction by one of the sponsors of the event, and here's what he said. Almost all of these Tibetan men who have joined us today have spent years in harsh prisons. The Communist Chinese Army not only imprisoned them for expressing their beliefs, but tortured them as well. Somehow they were released or able to escape from prison. Then, to find freedom, they walked across the Himalayas, the highest mountains on earth. Some tied rags on their feet because they had no good shoes. But even now they are in exile. They are forced to live far from their home, apart from their families and communities, and they do not know if they'll ever be able to return. What has kept them going through all of their struggle have been their songs and prayers. This is what they will sing for you today. In an instant, the gospel choir and the Tibetan monks looked at one another with eyes that shared the vulnerable depths of human sorrow, and they found understanding. Each group sang to the other from the heart, and when their music was finished, they came together to hug and embrace like long-lost brothers. So this is really the essence of compassion, which is to open to the vulnerability within us and around us. And there's a natural resonance and a natural urge to reach out and help, to relieve suffering, to help with awakening. And this is expressed in the most famous part of the Bodhisattva aspiration, the Bodhisattva vow, which many of you are probably familiar with. Through timeless existence, may this life serve the awakening and freedom of all beings. Through timeless existence, may this life serve the awakening and freedom of all beings. This isn't a grandiose aspiration. If it's made a feeling like, made this self do that, it's just burnout city. It just doesn't work. But if it comes from a place of just realizing belonging, that we just belong to each other, we belong to all this whole web of life, then it's a natural expression of that wisdom. Poet Haviz um, was talking to a man who ex- told him about a real enlightenment type of experience 
with a vision of God and an experience of merging with light and love. And then the man asked Tavis, was it real? I mean, was this really enlightenment? So here's what Havis responded. He said, do you have any goats? And the guy said, yes. Do you have a wife? Mm-hmm. Do you have children? Yeah. Siblings? Parents? Yeah. Friends? He nodded each time. And then Havis said, the realness of your experience will show itself through the kindness you express with each being in your life. So the aspiration is this inhabiting. It's letting this loving presence be expressed in action through our words, with each being, that everybody matters, each moment matters. And to support that, the bodhisattva trains the heart and mind because the conditioning is very, very thick. So we forget So there really is a training, and it's not a a tensing, striving kind of training. It's a training in paying attention to what we're kind of not paying attention to at the time. That what we find is our habit, when we're caught up in ourself, is to imagine others as kind of an outside object. And we don't really listen, and we don't really see and there's not a genuine presence because we're in that self-centered place. One of my favorite descriptions, about a century or two ago, the Pope decided that all the Jews had to leave Rome. Naturally, there was a big uproar from the Jewish community, so the Pope made a deal. He would have a religious debate with a member of the Jewish community. If the Jew won, the Jews could stay. If the Pope won, the Jews would leave. The Jews realized they had no choice, so they picked a middle-aged man named Moshe to represent them. Now, Moshe asked for one addition to the debate. To make it more interesting, neither side would be allowed to talk. (laughs) The Pope agreed. The day of the great debate came. Moshe and the Pope sat opposite each other for a full minute before the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Moshe looked back at him and raised one finger. The Pope waved his fingers in a circle above his head, and Moshe pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine. Moshe pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man's too good. The Jews can stay. (laughs) An hour later, the cardinals were all around the Pope, asking him what had happened. The Pope said, well, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity, He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there was still one God common to both our religions. Then I waved my fingers around me to show him that God was all around us, and he responded by pointing to the ground, showing that God was also right here now with us. I pulled out the wine and wafer to show that God absolves us from our sins. He pulled out an apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? (laughs) Meanwhile, (laughs) the Jewish community had crowded around Moshe. What happened, they asked. Well, said Moshe, first he said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here. (laughs) I told him that not one of us was leaving. (laughs) He told me that this whole city would be cleared of Jews, and I let him know we were staying right here. (laughs) Yes, yes, and then, asked the crowd, 
I don't know, said Moisha. He took out his lunch and I took out mine. (laughs) So who knows how much we really are interpreting, but when we're caught up in ourselves, we read in a lot and we don't listen carefully, and we don't look deeply. Our practice, how to be able to let go of our ideas and our assumptions, our plans, our memories, and see truly what's right here, which means what's right here with each other. Let me ask you to um, do a brief reflection again, if you will. Okay? Just close your eyes. And you've been doing this a lot this week, this just coming back home. Just sense right this moment, the kind of coming back home. Aware of the sounds. The feelings of sitting here, the sensations. Your breath. And just bring to mind, if you will, someone who's close to you. And just for a few moments, just think about that person. You might remember what they look like, perhaps the last time you were together, what they were doing, what they like, how they speak of the expressions they make. Just whatever comes to mind about this person. And then turn your attention back right here to your own experience again. Right now, right here, again, the awareness of sounds. Feeling the life of the body, sensations. Perhaps sensing what's happening in your heart, the quality or mood in your heart. Even turning back and just sensing the awareness that's knowing right now, just that knowing quality, that experience is known. This sea of wakefulness. And you might sense that this person you were reflecting on is more like this than any idea you could possibly have of them. This subjectivity, this wakefulness, this experiencing of sensations, of heart, of being here. It's a bit like T.S. Eliot writes in The Cocktail Party, 
What we know of other people is only our memory of the moments during which we knew them, and they have changed since then. We must also remember that at every meeting we are meeting a stranger, that we live with our ideas about each other, just the way we live in our ideas and our beliefs about ourselves. So there's a kind of quieting that's part of this bodhisattva training, a letting go of our idea of who you are or I am, and a deepening of attention that's intuitive, that's open, that's present. Again, if you'd like to open your eyes, please do. Especially in our lives when we're caught in, when we're stressed out, when there's a lot of fear or wanting, the way that we perceive others is particularly like an unreal other. If we're in a, in a phase where there's something, um, the, uh, the person evokes irritation or aversion, they're the other that we just want to push away. Or if we're in a wanting place, we want approval, and they're the object that might give us what we want or give us love or give us attention. But they're an object that is a kind of crea- a creation of our agenda, in a way. When we're in a kind of neutral place, there might be an indifference. They just don't matter to us. So whenever we're in any reactivity, we can't see who is here. Just like when we're internally in a reaction, we can't see what's true inside. When others are unreal others, when they seem different, it's possible to hurt them. I mean, when we think of wars going on, as long as they're over there and they're kind of a, an image or a story in our mind, it's, it's like we can tolerate or we can let it happen that there's hurting going on. But when it's close up and it becomes real and they're no longer that objective other, but we feel the living, breathing realness, that's when we have to respond with compassion. We have to act. It takes training to move from this kind of unreal other to subjective realness, um, to pausing enough, to quieting enough, to deepening attention so that we really can register who's here. It's that question that was asked this morning is, you know, isn't this really kind of self-absorbed? And we're learning to be present, and that presence is in widening circles. Another story, um, one that I share a lot because it's been um, a real inspiration for me, written by a a Unitarian minister who was with her family going from San Francisco, uh, driving down uh, to Los Angeles on Christmas Day. And she writes this, she says, It was normally an eight-hour drive, but with kids it can be a 14-hour endurance test. When we could stand it no longer, we stopped for lunch in King City, This little metropolis is made up of six gas stations, three diners, and it was into one of those the four of us trooped. As I sat, Eric, our one-year-old, in a high chair, I looked around the room and wondered, what am I doing in this place? The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family, and ours were the only children. Everyone else was busy eating, talking quietly, aware perhaps that we were all somehow out of place on this day. 
My reverie was interrupted when I heard Eric squeal with glee. Hi there, two words he thought were one. Hi there. His, he pounded his fat baby hands, whack, whack, on the metal high chair tray. His face was alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless grin. He wriggled and chirped and giggled, and then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes could not take it in all at once. A tattered rag of a coat, obviously bought by someone else eons ago, dirty, greasy, and worn. Baggy pants, both they and the zipper at half-mast over a spindly body, a shirt that had ring around the collar all over, and a face like none other, gums as bare as Eric's, hair uncombed, unwashed, and unbearable. Whiskers too short to be called a beard, but way, way beyond a shadow, and a nose so varicose it looked like a map of New York. I was too far away to smell him, but I knew he smelled, and his hands were waving in the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, hi there. Every call was echoed. I noticed waitresses' eyebrows shoot to their foreheads and several people sitting near us hemmed out loud. This old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric and he pulverized it on the tray. I whispered, why me, under my breath. Our meal came and the nuisance continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room, do you know patty cake? boy! do you know peekaboo? Hey, look, he knows peekaboo. Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was probably drunk and definite disturbance. I was embarrassed. My husband, Dennis, was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, why is that old man talking so loud? We ate in silence, except Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring applause of a skid row bum. Finally, I had enough. I turned the high chair. Eric screamed and clamored around to face his old buddy. Now I was really mad. Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet me in the parking lot. I trundled Eric out of the high chair and looked toward the exit. The old man sat poised and waiting, his chair directly between me and the door. Lord, just get me out of here before he speaks to me or Eric. I headed towards the door. It soon became apparent that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. <laughs> As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him in any air he might be breathing. As I did so, Eric all the while, with his eyes riveted to his best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position. In a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. The mom's eyes both asked and implored, Would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer since Eric propelled himself from my arms to the man's. Suddenly, a very old man and a very young baby were involved in a love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently, so gently, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and sat squarely on mine. He said in a firm, commanding voice, You take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. 
He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he was in pain. I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly, and why I was saying, My God, my God, forgive me. So just imagine if we could slow down in our daily life enough to really look at each other and know that the one looking back, just like us, is living with these uncertainties, is living with the vulnerability of being human, and also with the goodness, with the love that's in a human heart if we could really slow down and look and see that. It's a beautiful training, this bodhisattva training of karuna, or compassion, where we stop and let ourselves feel what's true right here. We let ourselves really open to it and then have that presence to see others. And when we're meditating, just to feel where we are hurting and then to remember persons, humans, that are like us, that are hurting in the same way, that we're in it together. I really love the way Longfellow describes seeing the secret suffering of our enemies and it dispels all hostility. That the truth is when we're not liking someone, we're not liking the way their suffering's expressing We're not liking how their wound is causing them to try to take care of themselves or soothe themselves. So if we can see that, if we can see just human hurting, it kind of drops away some of the reactivity. It says, Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau said, could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? So how do we respond? How do we respond to the suffering? And again, as we've been saying through this week, and it's something we realize internally over and over, that our deepest response to each other is presence. That our presence, our full attention, is the most basic expression of love. Thich Nhat Hanh, when he says, Darling, I care about this suffering. It's so beautiful because what it communicates is that our truth has been seen and understood and cared about. And that's what we most want. I sometimes think of it as a kind of spiritual reparenting, that the wound is because we weren't seen and we weren't cared about in an unconditional way. And the healing is when that presence is offered. We relearn something is possible, that we can trust something. I remember hearing about one doctor from a 
um, major clinic in the East Coast who was working, he worked a lot with homeless people, and one woman who was homeless and also a lot of mental illness came in monthly to see him. And she she would tell him the difficulties of, she had a lot of difficulties in her life, and he mostly just listened, and it was often rambling and confused, but he just, he could feel her um, pain, he could feel her goodness, he just listened, and um, tried to help where he could. And, it, and he found out later that she would sometimes come to the clinic on days when he was off, she seemed to know when he was off, and she'd go to his, uh, right, stand right outside his consulting room, she would never go in, but she'd stand on the threshold and she'd deliberately place her right foot in and then she'd take it out and then she'd put it in again and she'd take it out and she would do that for a while and then she would leave somehow satisfied. And I, I love that because, you know, the places where we feel seen and cared about, those are blessings. That's, that's when we're blessed because that allows us to reconnect with the okayness, the goodness, the awareness that's here. The poet Nikki Giovanni says, And if ever I touched a life, I hope that life knows that I know that touching was, and still is, and always will be the true revolution. So this is the most basic offering, is our presence. And when we're present, it then becomes intuitive and natural to sense other actions. And it might be that for some of us, the way we express our cares, being helpful in terms of serving our world, standing up against injustice, working for peace, small kindnesses with the people around us, kind words, working to save our earth. But there's a difference. You can see it in the difference between an anti-war movement and a peace movement. You know, that, that, it's, that we're working from a place of loving life, not a place of anger that just seeds more violence. Now it's easy in looking at the Bodhisattva path to fixate on pain. And tonight I spent a lot of time on how we're really responding to the suffering, because that's the center circle. But in that center circle, equal training to see the goodness that's there. And this is the metta. These are all the Brahma-viharas are in this training. That it is really our commitment and our joy to begin to move through this world. And when we look at the eyes that are looking at us, to see the awareness and beauty, to see the divine that's shining through. It's our greatest gift to each other as friends and family to be that kind of mirror where we actually mirror back what the other might be forgetting in a moment. And this is something that's very, it's an intentional thing. We can go home and we can actually have the intention of looking to see the goodness and of in some way letting others know. It is such an incredible gift. I know the way um, Rachel Naomi Remen put it, she described how her father died when she was seven years old and she had never lived in a world without him in it before and it was hard for her. And she said, he looked at me as no one else had and called me by a special name, Nishumala, which means little beloved soul. 
so that there was no one left to call me this anymore. At first I was afraid that without him to see me and tell God who I was, I might disappear. But slowly, over time, I came to understand that in some mysterious way, I had learned to see myself through his eyes, and that once blessed, we are blessed forever. Many years later, when in her extreme old age, my mother surprisingly began to light candles and talk to God herself, I told her about these blessings and what they had meant to me. She had smiled at me sadly. I have blessed you every day of your life, Rachel, she told me. I just never had the wisdom to do it out loud. So when we bow, you know, this namaste, the meaning is I I see the divine in you. You You know, in our culture, we see each other and we go, hey, how are you? You know, and in Asia, namaste, I see the divine in you. It's a little different feeling, isn't it? So what if we could really, this journey of the Spirit, have this intentionality, this um, aspiration on this bodhisattva path to offer blessings, to really offer blessings, the blessing of our presence to really see who's here, see the vulnerability, see the goodness, and the blessing of letting others know, know that we care know of their goodness. It's really the, the ground of the bodhisattva path, this training to see what's true and, and to respond. Just like the holy shadow, it's not a self that's trying to gain merit. We're doing it because we care. We just love life. And that training helps us to remember. Now one last thing to mention, and then I'm going to close, is that the bodhisattva path is really guided by the wisdom of impermanence. That we really um, know we don't have that long in this particular incarnation. Things come and go. And so there's a sense of the real preciousness of being here and who we're with. That each person matters, each moment matters. It's like Stephen Levine said, you know, If you only had three days to live, who would you call? And what would you say? And why aren't you doing that now? And we might say, well, we're on silence right now, but... (laughs) (laughs) So we offer our metta while we're here, but then we make that call, you know. One of the uh, first retreats I ever went to with Thich Nhat Hanh, at the end of the retreat, he taught a hug that I really loved, which was you stand, you know, right face to face with someone and you first look into each other's eyes, namaste, I see the divine in you. And then you hold each other and with the first in-breath and out-breath, the reflection is, I'm going to die. And then the second one is, you're going to die. And the third one is, and we have just these precious moments. So again, the question, you know, what if we could remember this wisdom of impermanence and the preciousness that's here? Poet Rumi says, in this field of spirit there is no division. Sweet is the oneness of the friend with his friends. Catch hold of the spirit, 
help this headstrong self dissolve, that beneath it you may discover unity like a buried treasure. So this is the ground of the Bodhisattva path, realizing this unity and inhabiting it, living from it, from that field of caring presence. So let's just take a moment to sit. We'll just do a brief closing reflection together. And as you come home to this moment, just sense honestly how it is for you, what's true. And then as a very brief reflection, just to Again, bring to mind someone who's dear, where it's very easy for you to feel a sense of care. And it could be somebody you know well or don't know so well, but that still there's a feeling of deep care. and sense what brings up that feeling of care, the goodness that you recognize, or maybe sensing what it's like to feel that person's love towards you. Just the look in their eyes, what it's like just to sense them loving you, and how your heart responds. You might sense the wisdom of impermanence. I'm going to die. And you're going to die. And we have just this moment, right here, right now. And just feel the field of loving that's right here. It's true that's right here. More than a self loving another, just a field of loving. And relaxing into it, dissolving into it, inhabiting it. But this is the field of loving that's vast enough to hold all beings. the widening of the circles that holds this world.
And when we live from this loving presence, whoever, whatever appears, is an expression of the divine. Thomas Merton puts it this way, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depth of their hearts where neither sin nor knowledge could reach, the core of reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more need for war, for hatred, for greed, for cruelty. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.